Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. My deficiency at math is pretty well known um, to most of the folks here at City Church. Um, It's no surprise. Um, I reference it a lot. I'm just not that good at math. Doesn't make sense to me. But that wasn't always the case. There was a time where I was actually pretty good at math. I was pretty good at math at school until it started to get abstract, until it started to get theoretical, until I started to ask the question, what does this have to do with anything in real life. When math became unusable for me, I was out. I checked out. I I didn't want to deal with it anymore. And what's funny is we, we all tend to do that with one thing or another. We all tend to think that if something is abstract, if I can't see how this is relevant to my life, I'm going to ignore it. I'll just move along. I don't need that. That's not relevant to me, that's not relevant to my life, moving along. We do this with the Bible, too. We do this with the Bible. We sort of sort things into different boxes and sort of say, okay, this is the box of things that I should believe, and this is the box of things that I should do. And this box is very important to me. How should I live my life? And I'll believe the things in this box, but I'm just going to set them over there. It's fine. I don't need them. I'll set them away. When we do that, we end up actually harming the way that we approach God. Because it's like, uh, some of you may be familiar with the the horse drawing, a famous sort of picture on the internet where the drawing on the the right side of the drawing is, is incredible. It's this this hand-pencil-drawn picture of a horse. It's shaded. It has color and light. And then as you go leftward on the picture, it ends up the other side of the horse is just a stick figure that's poorly drawn. Maybe another way of illustrating this. When we ignore the doctrinal portions of the Bible, the what we should believe portions of the Bible, and just focus on the what we should do portions of the Bible, It's sort of like a a cloyingly sweet dessert. You've had this, something that is just all cream and sugar. It is all one note. And you take a bite, and that first bite is, it is rich, it is good. But very quickly you go, okay, that's about enough of that. And you you politely turn to everyone else at the table and say, does anyone else want a bite? You You can have some. Does anyone else want a bite of this? What? It's so cloyingly sweet. It needs acid. It needs, it needs something else to sort of cut through. It needs a salty, savory element. It needs more. In many ways, for the past few decades, Christianity as a whole, and American Christianity in particular, has been pretty one-note. Has been pretty focused on one thing. We say things like, Doctrine divides. We're just trying to be unified. We say things like, 
well, just show me how to live the sort of life Jesus wants me to live. That's what I'm concerned about. We say, we don't really sweat the small stuff at our church. We're focused on the bigger picture. And while there is something good and helpful in those perspectives, when that is our perspective on the entire Bible, we run into trouble. I say all of this because this morning, the text that we're going to look at from John chapter 5, uh, it's, it's pretty dense. It's a somewhat difficult text to understand. In many ways, what's happening in the text is that Jesus is going to, going to defend the fact that he himself is God. And that is, in and of itself, something that seems abstract. Certainly we believe it, but it's certainly an abstract thing that Jesus was God. But not only that, the way that Jesus is going to do this is by using the legalese of the rabbis of his time. Jesus is going to use the sort of legal framework that Jewish leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, rabbis of all different sorts would use. And so that makes it a bit harder for us to understand. And then add on top of that, that it's all about Jesus' divine nature, Jesus being God. You stack all that up, and what we're going to see is that even though we affirm the fact, our belief that Jesus was God each week, Every Sunday we say it when we say the Apostles' Creed. But we rarely, if ever, consider what that means. What does it mean that Jesus is actually God? How does that fact enter into our day-to-day life? Because if we consider it carefully, the fact that Jesus is divine, the divinity of Jesus can and should have profound effects on our life. So I want to show you how that's going to work, but I'd like to ask you to to stand if you're at home. If you've got a Bible, we encourage you to open it up to John chapter 5. I'm going to be reading verses 25 all the way down to verse 47. And as we stand up, as we give our attention to the very words of Jesus, let us hear what he has for us this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given authority to him to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in their tombs will hear his voice and come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John. And he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater 
than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who has sent me himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you've never seen. You do not know and you do not have his words abiding in you. For you do not believe in the one who he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you will have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you might have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my father's name and you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when and when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he who wrote, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? City Church is the word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this week. If you're standing, you may be seated. So I think you can see what I mean about this passage being somewhat dense. Jesus is using this rabbi language because Jesus was himself a rabbi. And he is using the language of the Jewish law to explain to them and to show them who he was, that he was God. And he he begins in the first paragraph, in verses 25 down to 29, by talking about the fact that he is going to give life, that he is giving life. And it would be easy on reading this first, on hearing me read this out loud the first time through, it'd be easy to say, oh, he's talking about the same thing. He's talking about the resurrection and the end of the world, about the judgment that is to come. But if you look carefully, Jesus does a thing that a lot of rabbis in his time would do. He says something similar, but in two different ways. Because he says, a time is coming and is now where the dead will hear my voice and they will be given life. That's something that Jesus is doing right now. Jesus is making dead people alive. Jesus is making dry bones to sing. Jesus is pouring out his spirit and bringing people who were dead in their trespasses and sins to life. This is the picture of Jesus giving each one of us who follows him the very life that we have inside of us. What John calls again and again eternal life. The life of the age to come that begins Now, Jesus does this through his voice because he is God. Because he is God, he can take our dry, dead spirits and give them life again. He can take our spirits that are weighed down and heavy and give them lightness and joy. Jesus is at work doing this. But he's also going to do something else. And he tells us about that too. 
not only is he giving life to the spiritually dead right now, not only is he going to give life to the physical dead in a few years with his friend Lazarus, but he is also on the last day going to raise all mankind from their tomb. And he's going to judge them. Now, the judgment and wrath of God is not something that we like to talk about. It's not something we talk about a lot. It's true of me, right? I mean, I know I don't talk about it because it seems it seems kind of fuddy-duddy and old school. And I, I'm not like the other pastors. I'm a cool pastor. And I, you know, so maybe I'll hedge a little bit on talking about the wrath of God. Maybe I'll hedge a little bit on talking about God's judgment. This is a tendency of our one-note Christian culture. We love to talk about the love of God, but we don't talk about the judgment of God. I think one of the problems with not talking about the judgment of God is that we actually miss out on something we desperately need. We miss out on something that's actually really hopeful, especially in a moment like right now. Like right now, where we see not only a pandemic, but we see riots, we see violence, we see all sorts of things going on. And wrath and judgment are absolutely tied to the justice of God. The wrath of God, the judgment of God says sin will not go It says justice will be made right. It says that actions have consequences. That evil will not have the last word, but evil will be punished and judged in the life to come. We skip out on this. We focus on love and we miss. And this focus on love, apart from the judgment of God, has real life consequences. Because when we neuter God's judgment, when we neuter God's wrath, we neuter the justice in this world. Because it is the judgment of God based on his character that gives us hope that justice will be meted out. We are are right now as a culture crying out for justice. In so many ways, our culture is crying out that things will be made right, things will be made whole. But on what basis do we make that cry? On what basis do we make that right? As Christians, we do that based on the judgment and character of who God is. But when you begin to take that away, or even within Christianity, if you take away the love or the justice of God, take away the judgment, his judgment goes away too, and we are left with ourselves, as the judges. If you're joining us this morning, you're not a Christian. What is the basis of your judgment? Why should justice happen? I think it's interesting. I was was reading this. I want to read this Carl Sagan quote. Carl Sagan uh, talked about this in the year that he died. He showed a picture of Earth from some astronomically far way away. It was from the satellite Voyager as it was leaving our solar system. And Earth was just a pixel in this 
enormous picture that the Voyager sent back as it left Earth's system. And, and he wrote a lot about it. It's a sort of poem almost that Carl Sagan wrote called The Blue Pixel. But here's how he sums up. Here's his last paragraph in this. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. The only basis for justice that Carl Sagan could come up with, Carl Sagan, who was a brilliant mind, who, who I respect dearly as a scientist, but when it comes to why should we be just, why should we be kind, it's because Earth is very small in the grand scheme of things, and so we ought to be kind to one another. If that seems maybe hollow, if that seems like not enough, if it seems like that there's something more that we need, that is where actually the wrath and judgment of God steps in because evil will be judged. Justice will roll down like mighty waters. It is because of God's wrath and God's judgment that we can have hope that injustice and racism will not have the last word in this world, but that all things that are wrong will be made right. And we can believe in that because of the judgment of God. But Jesus doesn't just talk about the fact that he's given us life. He doesn't just talk about the fact that justice is coming. He also uh, starts to talk about the fact and defend the fact that he is God. But the way that he does this seems a little bit weird. The, the verses 30 through 47, as we read them, seem almost redundant. They seem kind of circular. We're unsure of what's going on. But, but the people who heard this the first time Jesus said it would have understood exactly what was happening. Because what Jesus was doing was Jesus was conducting a court case. Jesus was calling witnesses to say, this shows who I am. This shows who I am. And he calls four witnesses through this paragraph. The first witness that he calls is John the Baptist, who, who literally upon seeing Jesus says, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When John baptized Jesus, the Spirit of, of God descended on Jesus like a dove, and the voice from heaven came out and said, this is my Son in whom I am well Jesus says, John the Baptist is telling the truth about me. You guys just stopped listening to him. And Jesus says, not only did John talk about me, not only did John say who I was, but the miracles that I'm doing show that I am sent from God. Only God can do these things. Only God can make the lame to walk, the blind to see, the dead to live. Jesus says the miracles don't prove that God exists. They prove that I am. God. But then he also talks about the fact that God himself testifies that Jesus is God. That God the Father testifies that Jesus is God. And what Jesus starts to do is Jesus starts to turn the tables a little bit here. 
because he goes from being a, a defense attorney of saying, no, look, look at these reasons why I am God. But he begins to turn the table. He says, because you have never heard the voice of God. You have never seen God. He says, you search for the scriptures because you think in them you will find eternal life. But you're not finding that eternal life. Because what you should be looking for is me. And then he brings out his sort of show-stopping piece of evidence. His, his big reveal, his big finish in his argument is, you think that Moses is on your team because I healed somebody on the Sabbath. You think that you're in the right. Guess what? Moses says that I am God. Moses wrote about me thousands of years ago. You want to know what the Bible has to say? What the Bible was, it's all about me. All of the ceremonies of the law point to me. All of the beautiful perfections of God that are pointed to in Moses' writings are all about me. I was the one who Moses wrote about. You see, the, the people that were listening to this, the people that were listening to this thought that they could earn God's favor by the things that they were doing. That if they had the right knowledge, if they searched scripture carefully enough, God would bless them. If they lived their life in just the right way and did just the right works, God would bless them, give them eternal life. If they curated their emotions in the proper way, God would give them eternal life. Jesus says no. It is not Bible study that gives you eternal life. It is not good works that give you eternal life. It is not well-curated emotions that give you eternal life. I'm the one who gives you eternal life. It's me. Any of those things are just a means to me, not a means to themselves. And it's easy for us to point at them and say, yes, yes. Those leaders of the time, they were doing it wrong. But we do this too, and we don't do it as good as them. The, the, they used to say that the, the test for a rabbi, this is an old wives' tale, was that they would pick a random scroll of the Old Testament out and drive a nail through it. And you had to look at the scroll, and you had to be able to say what letter, all the letters that that nail went through. They knew the Bible better than any of us. They did more good works. They tithed out of their spice garden. They curated their emotions, but they missed the point. You know, I can remember when I was a young man driving down to St. Pete, driving down Central Avenue, and stopping at the State Theater. And I would stop at the State Theater, and I'd get out of my car, and I would look at all of the posters that were plastered on the windows of State Theater to see what shows were coming up, to see which concerts were coming up. Now imagine studying one of those and seeing the things. Ah, yes. Ah, oh, Juliana Theory is going to be playing in August. Oh, that's going to be great. And oh, River City High is going to be opening for them. Oh, Dawson is going to be the first act that plays. And knowing that, that the doors open at 7, bands start at 8, Knowing who's presenting the show, knowing 
who's promoting the show, being able to see which DIY local person put this poster together, but then missing the show. All of these things are meant to point us to something bigger. They're meant to point us to Jesus himself and his divinities. So that's why we need this sort of life. Because we often study the poster and miss the concert. That's why we need this life. That's why we need Jesus to pour his spirit out on us. This is where Jesus' divinity stops being abstract and theoretical. We need the Son of God to give life to these dead bones and to bring justice to this dark world. It begins to become practical because Jesus is making you new. Church, if you are a follower of Christ, if you are trusting in him, Jesus is making you new right now. He is changing you. Eternal life has started in you. And now it's your responsibility to go out and share that life with others. To share the sort of love and life that Jesus has given you with everyone you come in contact with. Church, Take hope. Jesus is making you new. And he's making you new because he is the son of God, God himself, who has the very words of life in his mouth. But it's not just that he's making us new. It's not just our individual selves. But Jesus is making the world right. Jesus is saying that justice is going to have the last that all of the suffering verbs and injustice will put, be put to sleep, will be put out. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, is the Lord of this world. And he will make all things right. Even in the face of all of the things that we see around us, in the face of sickness, death, violence, Justice will roll down like mighty waters because God is making all things right. Take hope, church. Jesus is Lord. And the kingdom of this world is becoming the kingdom of Jesus.